0: Is to wake up. Is, where, where the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population
1: out there that has to be called the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live!
2: Now, from
0: the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at
2: PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. I'd like to thank the listeners who support the Peter B. Collins Show, including Carl Hesterberg, Greg Chavaria of San Francisco, and Rob Greenley of Seattle. Your support is quite appreciated. And if you'd like to help, and you can, this program is distributed free, and your subscription is voluntary for as little as 5 bucks a month. Just log on to PeterBCollins.com, and on the homepage, there's that tab on the right that says you can help. And another way you can help during March here when we're asking you to tell a friend is to sit down at your little computer and send out a blast of emails inviting people to check out The Peter B. Collins Show at iTunes or PeterBCollins.com. But over the weekend, we learned of the passing of Peter Graves. And I wanted to give the Mission Impossible theme one more spin. Graves was never a big, big star. But he was a working actor for all of his life. And of course, Mission Impossible is one of his best-known roles. Also, the wacky airline, airline pilot in the Airplane Series was one that he worried about might damage his career but it introduced him to a whole new generation and we're even going to forgive his work as a reverse mortgage spokesman and tv ads just before he died phyllis bennis returns to the pbc show it's time to end the war in afghanistan Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington and also the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam. I hope that includes frequent travel to uh, the Netherlands. And Phyllis has uh, published a series of small books with powerful ideas. These are the kinds of things that fit in your pocket, are great if you uh, have a, a commute on a subway or a bus, and take on very critical issues. I am trying to collect the entire set I've got Ending the Iraq War, a primer. Understanding the U.S.-Iran Crisis, a primer. Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a primer. And now with co-author David Wildman, she has published Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan, a primer. Phyllis, great to talk with you again.
1: Great to talk to you, Peter. I'm always amazed when people manage to have all four of those books. I'm very impressed.
2: Well, you know, some uh, some of the books walk out of here on their own, but I I managed to to hold (laughs) on to the... To hold on <laughs> to the important feet. ones, yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about David Wildman. Uh, you have a collaborator this time.
1: I do, and he's a terrific collaborator. David is an old friend of mine. He's the director of human rights and racial justice at the, uh, the Methodist Church in New York, nationally. And he's also the co-chair of the U.S. campaign to end Israeli occupation, So he and I have worked together for a long time. In the last couple of years, he's spent a significant amount of time in Afghanistan working with people there, and he came to the project with uh, much more experience on the ground in Afghanistan than I had. So I think we were a good team to put this little book together.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, before we wrap up today, I would like to ask you to comment on the latest developments uh, between Israel and Palestine and uh, Joe Biden's snub when he arrived in Israel recently. But first, to the war in Afghanistan. And one of the things, Phyllis, uh, I have often cheered you when you are invited to appear on the PBS NewsHour. And uh, I my TiVo's been screwing up, so I haven't been faithful to the program every day, but I haven't seen you recently, and it represents to me a glaring uh, omission in the American media. The voices calling for peace, the voices calling for a rational approach to our presence in Afghanistan, have been virtually eliminated from the coverage since Barack Obama's December 1st speech at West Point, announcing a new escalation in U.S. military presence in Afghanistan.
1: Well, I think you're right, Peter, that we are seeing a huge blockade, if you will, by the mainstream media. I I must say, though, that I think that it had actually begun on the question of Afghanistan even before President Obama's uh, uh, speech announcing his escalation. It was something that we were really not hearing about at all during the Bush administration, when of course the Iraq War really took center stage, and when and that that really that absence of news really continued when President Obama came into office, having promised during the campaign that he would escalate the war in Afghanistan. I mean, this was something that I think many of us were very uneasy about, but didn't focus enough about. In that extraordinary mobilization that swept President Obama into office because he told us he would end the war in Iraq, something that he is for the moment abiding by at least the letter, if not the spirit, of the agreement on withdrawal
2: yeah we're down to ninety eight thousand troops, and Odierno is saying that it'll be fifty thousand in August. I hope that's true there's he some
1: says that they'll all be out by the end of next year as required that's the part i'm having a little trouble with, but yeah. but as I say, so far it's on track. Uh, and he said he would escalate in Afghanistan. That is a promise kept, and yet we don't hear in the mean, in the mainstream media the reality that the majority of Americans are now saying that the war in Afghanistan is not a good war; it's a bad war and should be ended. That's a real shift in public opinion. It's a mm-hmm. real shift in the discourse. It's not yet a shift in policy. It's not being heard. Uh, at least in a serious way, in the White House. I mean, we, unlike during the Bush years, we do, we, those of us who support diplomacy rather than military solutions, uh, do have been invited to the White House a couple of times. I've been at a couple of meetings there. But I can't say that I thought they were serious engagements mm-hmm. with real efforts to uh, take seriously the alternative proposals. It seemed too much uh, scripted trying to get us on board with what was already underway.
2: So I, I will say, though, with that in terms of media coverage, at least domestically, we did hear uh, a range of voices, not the full spectrum, but a range of voices after McChrystal's report was leaked at the end of August of 2009 and up through the president's speech on December 1st. There was at least some semblance of debate now i don't I, mean, I don't you know, feel that the 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 one key position that was never represented at the table was withdrawal uh, I it think was that's really the
1: point there was debate you're absolutely right peter and and that subtlety is important. There was that debate on escalation and partly because there was a divide among military people, and that always gets more attention in the press. Mm-hmm. Some of the military people, most notably then general and now Uh, Ambassador Eikenberry came out strongly against the proposal for the McChrystal proposal for for massive escalation. Uh, And we heard other voices as well against the escalation. But even those opposing the escalation who were being heard at that time were not the opponents of escalation who also support ending the entire war, not just not escalating. Mm -hmm. So that is a very important distinction, and you're absolutely right to point it out.
2: Now, in your primer, you do a great job of uh, explaining the issues in direct and, uh, uh, in some cases, uncomplicated ways. And you also do a great job of weaving in uh, quotes and uh, attributed comments to President Obama, both as a candidate and once he took office. Mm -hmm. And in there, we really hear the arguments that should be taking precedence, that Number one, uh, this does not have a legal basis. Uh, we're essentially conducting another illegal war right. uh, without even uh, the, the uh, charade or, or, you know, some sort of sanction from the United Nations. Uh, we are in a lose-lose situation, uh, attempting to shift our tactics to uh, counterinsurgency efforts. But we continue to kill civilians uh, at at a very alarming rate. We have an illegitimate government that we have closed ranks with in Kabul. uh, And we continue to use uh, illegal or extra legal means, such as the targeting of uh, unindicted individuals with the aerial drones, and they are summarily executed. And so these are very troubling issues that really don't get aired out. We're, we're seeing a kind of uh, sports center approach to the coverage, what little there is, of the war in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, you know, you're, you're raising all the right questions, Peter. What we're facing is an extraordinary investment of resources, most importantly young soldiers, that are being deployed across the world to kill people. And what we're hearing now in in the new report that just came out only about Afghanistan, uh, sorry, only about Pakistan, where the number of drone attacks under President Obama is way beyond those under President Bush, one-third of the people killed in those drone attacks are civilians. Imagine what that does to the popular view of who Americans are and why we're there among the Pakistani people who already, according to uh, uh, major polling information, already believe the United States represents the most significant threat to Pakistan, even more than India, their traditional competitor. And what we're hearing is we're there to make us safer. And yet, this huge investment of lives, the cost in the hundreds of billions of dollars, this year, by September, we will be up to one over $1 trillion in the cost of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan since their beginning, and this year we will spend a trillion dollars just this year on the combined military budget and the costs of the war. That money could be used so much better at home. You know, Peter, just the cost of President Obama's escalation, his sending 30,000 new troops, that cost about uh, 30 billion dollars. The, yeah. the soldiers cost about a million dollars apiece. That could pay for 600,000 new, green, well-paid union jobs in this country. Well, it to make us safer?
2: It could extend health care benefits. And, health
1: care, and... education, jobs. And the, the bottom line is, people say to me sometimes, yeah, but if it's keeping us safe, no price is too high. And the problem with that is, number one, some prices are too high when it involves other people's lives. That's not a way to make us safe. But the other part of the answer is it's not making us safer. It's putting us at greater risk because of the number of people that are outraged, antagonized, infuriated, devastated by the death of their parents, their children, their grandparents, members of their tribe, members of their community. And they are being killed by invisible drones out of the sky what are people likely to re- how are people likely to respond to that it's not going to be with rice and flowers in the street yeah. it's going to be with the creation of more terrorists for every one that we happen to get right
2: and in a recent podcast i think it was about 6 weeks ago we talked with uh, reporter anand gopal mm. and he had revealed uh, information about the uh, recurring night raids that uh, not only often uh, kill or injure or Uh, alienate uh, innocent civilians or even people connected with the central government in Kabul, Um, but also uh, the use of detention centers that are not at Bagram, where it's believed that uh, torture or at least some form of the so-called euphemized uh, enhanced interrogation techniques continue to be utilized. Absolutely. And, you know, much of this does not get reported in, in the mainstream media in this country. And so uh, people are, I think, lulled into a sense of complacency because Obama is not Bush. And, and they're willing to rely on that when you made what I think is the most significant point, that his speech on December 1st at West Point was framed around Bush talking points, and it just infuriated me. Yeah. He he referred to 9-11, and he conflated the Taliban and al-Qaeda, uh, and he knows better he 's an intelligent man who knows that our enemy right. in Afghanistan is not simply the Taliban of uh, mullah Omar but it 's an array of uh insurgent groups, some connected to Hekmatyar, some uh, related to lesser warlords on a regional basis uh but uh, you know he dumbed it down uh for he did. for but, our you know, I must consumption say, peter
1: that despite all of that what 's what 's impressive to me is that an extraordinary number of people in this country have realized that this war is not a quote good war that this is not a uh, a war to be proud of this is not a war that's going to make us safer and more and more people are starting to speak up i think that what we're seeing is a real shift within uh... the anti-war movement among anti-war organizers people are realizing we need a different kind of anti-war movement i think that the The huge street mobilizations, the the anger in the streets that characterized so much of the movement during the uh, eight years of the Bush administration was a lot because the wars, particularly the war in Iraq, was symptomatic of everything that was wrong about the Bush administration and everything that it represented, and the movement was as much anti-Bush as it was anti-war. Today I think it's more complicated, because even while these wars have not changed, except I think you could argue that in Afghanistan it's actually gotten worse under President Obama. Agreed. President Obama is not George Bush, and the, uh, the, in, in many other ways the improvement on certain issues, it's narrow so far, we haven't won victories in health care and jobs, but in some things around immigration, around some labor issues, there are real changes afoot And we have a, a different reality. So I think people are struggling to figure out how do we mobilize against these wars in this period. And I think one of the things that we're looking at is the kind of mobilization that says that opposing these wars means focusing on the cost of war. And that means that we recognize that the movements that are rising against... The economic challenges we face against these economic crises and for economic justice, whether it's for jobs, for health care, for education, for, for uh, money for, for dealing with climate change, all of those issues, that broad movement is going to be the centerpiece. And within that, there will be a component that's focusing on the militarization of our foreign policy and the, the cost of military spending. Uh, And looking at those comparisons, like the one I mentioned earlier, the the, the $30 billion we're paying for the escalation, that could instead be used to pay for 600,000 new green jobs. The fact that for every soldier we send to Afghanistan for one year, that cost is a million dollars. That could pay for 20 good, well-paid union jobs. I think those links and that kind of... Uh, involvement we're going to see more involvement, I think from the unions much more than we did over the over the eight years of the Bush administration and the mobilization against wars at that time
2: well, uh, a couple of comments on that first, um I have uh, coined an idea uh, that's built on the, uh, the 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 way they called Reagan the Teflon president <laughs> and I suggest that there's a new and improved product from DuPont that uh, Obama has called Left And it prevents any attacks from the left from sticking. And it kind of uh, diffuses uh, any momentum uh, from people who voted for him and who generally support a Democratic majority from confronting him on this issue. And as we speak here on March 16th, uh, there is a big rally planned in Washington this weekend and satellite marches scheduled around the country. And I hope to be wrong about this, but I'm afraid that uh, there'll be more people turning out for St. Patrick's Day parades than for uh, a, a meaningful attempt to communicate uh, what you uh, uh, properly uh, call a majority opposition to this war in Afghanistan.
1: Well, you know, Peter, I, I think you raise a very important question. I like your left-line notion. <laughs> but I do think that that is beginning to change. I think that people are ap- appropriately still compelled by the reality that this country that was founded not just on the basis of racism, but on the basis of slavery and genocide against Native people and against African people, that that nation could elect an African American based not on him being the favorite candidate of the elites, but on a huge mobilization that swept him into office despite the fact that he wasn't the first choice. He had been vetted, he was acceptable, no no doubt, But he wasn't the first choice. And that was a huge accomplishment. And I think that that is still something that people are celebrating. And I think that's right. But I think one of the things we're going to see this weekend, you may well be right about the demonstration on Saturday. I'm not convinced that right now street demonstrations is going to be the most important or or influential part of our mobilizations. I hope the demonstration Saturday is good and powerful. But I think on Sunday... We're going to see an enormous, powerful demonstration here in Washington led around the question of immigrant rights, led by mainly Latino and some African organizations that have been fighting for immigrant rights for decades, who only now are seeing the possibility that some of their goals may come to fruition. And they're being joined by a host of other sets of constituencies who are involved in the work, in the struggle for jobs, for education, for all of the economic rights. That are so missing in this country. And within that demonstration, we will see components of people saying, spend the money not on the wars in Afghanistan, spend the money on jobs and health care and education. That's where I think we're going to have power in the coming period.
2: But I, 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 I share your hope for that. As I look at it, though, the calculus is how many members of the House will vote against the next supplemental? This will be coming from the president who swore off supplementals. Right. Uh, to pay for the uh, ongoing effort in Afghanistan and, to some extent, the withdrawal from Iraq. Mm -hmm. And we saw last year that out of the progressive caucus, only about 30 held firm in voting against the supplemental. And Pelosi was pushing hard for those votes uh... right around memorial day of right. of two thousand nine well and I so, think so. It's I, going I don't to be
1: a little different but not yeah. entirely different i don't think we're going to succeed this time around i'll say that i don't think we're going to have enough votes to defeat the supplemental i do think the politics of it are going to be different pelosi has said she won't urge her members to vote for the supplemental this time around that's right The president is on his own that will be enough i think if we can get the sixty five who voted the other day to support Congressman Kucinich's bill, which was very important because it would have represented the first discussion in Congress for the question of whether or not we should be in Afghanistan, the first time that has been debated in Congress since September 15th of 2001, four days after the attacks on the World Trade Center, when Congress first passed what they claimed was authorization of the Bush administration to go to war anywhere in the world for as long as they wanted. Mm -hmm. They have not since that time debated, they've debated funding, but they haven't debated, should we be in Afghanistan? And that's why that bill was so important. We had 65 votes for that bill. I'm hoping we can get as many as 65 against the, uh, the supplemental. But I think what's going to happen is, under those circumstances, if the wide range of Democrats that you and I have both seen collapse under pressure, mm-hmm. collapse again, They will lose the election. They will lose in November. They will lose control of the House of Representatives. And I think at that point, that's going to be a wake-up call Mm -hmm. to the Democrats and say, if we can't hold our base because we're violating every tenet of what our base wants and what they fought for to elect President Barack Obama, then we're not going to be able to make it. And that's what's going to press them. I'm afraid that principle does not go very far in our Congress, unfortunately, in our congressional system. What goes far is political capital. And when it becomes too expensive politically for them to do the wrong thing, they'll do the right thing because they don't have another
2: option. Mm -hmm.
1: It's a hell of a thing to have to hope for.
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, Lately, uh, the Republican holdover Secretary of Defense, uh, Bob Gates, has been floating... Ideas, And I'm uncomfortable, first, that the president announced this uh, so-called surge based on the myth of a successful surge in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, And now we, you know, and and at the same time he announced that this would be a quickie, that uh, they would start pulling troops out this coming summer. Well, that was a
1: very moderate claim. It was that we will consider maybe (laughs) beginning the long process of how to pull out troops. And This was not a commitment to being done in 18 months.
2: Understood. Yeah. But Gates has recently been echoing those comments. And this, I think, is going to be a kind of a whiplash effect. It's intended for domestic political consumption, a Kissinger-type line, pieces at hand, when we know that it doesn't square with the long slog of counterinsurgency work in a hostile environment where the enemy has uh, natural connections to the population and we do not. And, and so it, it's farcical, and it does seem to me that this is going to be uh, a real weight around the necks of uh, Democrats running for reelection this fall, and that Obama is risking uh, the majority in the House. I've written off the Senate because of retirements and uh, other shifts that make it uh, uh, far-fetched to imagine that they would ever get back to uh, Mm -hmm. more than 56 or, or 58 Democratic votes. So it's going to be pivotal in the House, and Pelosi could lose that majority over these very issues.
1: That's absolutely right. And I think that what Secretary Gates is saying is very dangerous, both for all the reasons you're mentioning, the political consequences, but there's also an ideological consequence here. What we're hearing is more and more assertions that we won in Iraq, that somehow the surge worked, we won the war, we're now on our way out, and look at this election, what a low level of violence. Well, imagine, Peter, if we had had a U.S. election, and and we're much bigger, we're ten times the size of the population of Iraq. Yeah. But imagine if we had had an election where 38 people at least were killed in election violence in at least 150 violent incidents around the country. Would we consider that a peaceful, nonviolent election? It's, It's a real statement about just how bad conditions remain in Iraq, that the death of 38 people on one day across the country in election violence could be heralded as a great success for free and fair and peaceful elections. So we're facing a huge contradiction. We're already hearing also from, from Gates and from others the possibility that, oh, well, maybe we'll have to go beyond this end of 2011 deadline when we're supposed to have all of our troops, combat troops, trainers, everybody out of Iraq maybe there will be a request by the Iraqi government and we'll have to stay a little longer. Of course, we want to recognize Iraq as a sovereign country, but maybe, just maybe, as partners, they just might want to request that we stay just a little bit longer. And, of course, if they did, we would be glad to oblige. And the notion that Iraq is a sovereign country when the election to elect these people was held while it is still under occupation. It boggles the mind, and we're expected to believe this. It's a very dangerous development.
2: Yeah, and and back in Afghanistan, we have uh, a new a PR campaign to sell us on this recent uh, uh, coordinated effort in Marjah. Yeah. and Marjah is a you know it's a little uh, farming market community. It's not a a a, a very central asset. Uh, to the government of Kabul. But it's and a central
1: asset to the U.S. Pentagon because that's where we decided to send 3,000 troops all at once to show that we could overcome this tiny little town filled with perhaps a couple of hundred guerrillas.
2: And the strategy is to hold these areas once we take them. We simply don't have the boots on the ground to do that. And now we've announced with a little less specificity that uh, Kandahar province will be our next uh, uh, target uh, for trying to control. And here's the story from uh, just a couple of days ago, Dateline Kandahar. The Taliban called their deadly bomb attacks on Kandahar a warning to NATO's top general that the insurgents are ready for the next major offensive in their heartland. And what's unusual is that the Taliban, uh, at least that's what we call this array of insurgent forces, but uh, these these people uh, bombed civilians, including 10 people who were killed at a wedding. And so they're now escalating their tactics with less regard for the civilian population and more of an effort to tweak uh, the U.S. and its uh, phony coalition.
1: Absolutely. And of course, the people who pay the price are the people, the ordinary civilian people who live in and around Marjah or elsewhere in Afghanistan, because everywhere that the U.S. and NATO troop presence rises, the number of insurgent attacks rises as well. In this case, the only difference is it's happening before the U.S. even gets there. Uh, my guess is that there will be an, another further escalation of these kinds of attacks before the presence of the U.S. and NATO troops in force, by the time they get there, the insurgent forces will likely have, quote, melted away. It's the Mm -hmm. expression they like to use, which really means that these part-time guerrillas, who just happen to be part-time farmers, who happen to live there, will melt back to their farms and families. Mm -hmm. And And then we will see the declaration, no doubt, of a huge victory, that we wiped out the Taliban, they're gone. It's like, yeah, because this week they're... Putting on their farmer hat instead of their gorilla hat. And it's a question of who controls the territory. Well, the answer is the people who live there and the people who fight with, for, and about them who come from there, who speak the language, who have the ties. And we don't. That's the bottom line. We are the invaders, not them. There was an extraordinary moment, Peter. I don't know if you saw this. It was in a uh, Senate Foreign Relations hearing, somewhat a committee hearing, uh, about, oh, it must have been about three months ago, I guess. And Admiral Mullen was testifying, and one of the senators asked him in this very sort of sarcastic, snarky voice, he said, so tell me, Admiral, uh, how many tanks do the Taliban have? <laughs> he said, "Oh, they don't have any tanks, Senator. And how many planes do they have? And he rolled his eyes and said, no planes, Senator. And he goes on through a few more major weapon systems, and then he says, so how is it that they're winning? And Admiral Mullen looked him straight in the eye, and he said, it's their country, that was a very powerful recognition that the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff knows it. So, why is it that we are continuing to send our young troops in to kill and die in that war when we know that the other side is going to win because it's their country? And we, have, we think of
2: them. We have this cumulative negativity that comes from running a torture shop at uh, Bagram, from installing uh, Hamid Karzai, a former Unical uh, consultant from the night raids and the drones and the killing of civilians and i see it as a as an impossibility that we can turn that around because they know that we will not be there forever. And whenever right. we decide to leave, scores will be settled. And the locals who collaborated with the occupying Americans know that they will pay a severe price, perhaps with their lives. Absolutely. And so w- w- there's no calculus that I see that would allow us to prevail in the long term.
1: I think you're right. One of the things that that, Pete, that David and I talked about in our book is that something that's known by Afghans and has been known for centuries is that they are in a very weird position in the world. They don't have a lot of indigenous resources. They don't have huge pools of oil and huge deposits of natural gas. They have bits and pieces of little bits of oil, a little bit of gas, a few gems here and there, but they don't really have anything that makes them worth Uh, going to war for, but they have this strategic location, 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 location. It's real estate all over again. And that was the reason that they were invaded and occupied by Genghis Khan and by Alexander the Great and by the old Russian Empire and by the British and by the Soviets and now by the U.S. again. And they know that each time invaders come, they occupy the country, they kill some people, a lot of their soldiers die, and then they leave.
2: And so it's the a matter question
1: of for them is how long is it going to take the Americans?
2: Right, which winter will see the departure of exactly. the? Because we, you know, we only fight during the good weather.
1: It will be the winter of our discontent.
2: <laughs> <laughs> One more about Afghanistan, and then I want to get your thoughts about Israel Palestine. Uh, Karzai is now making uh, a big deal out of the U.S. capture, with the help allegedly of Pakistanis, of Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar. And he's described as second-in-command to Mullah Omar. And uh, we now hear that Karzai is pissed because he was uh, engaged in some secret talks with Baradar. Right. And uh, so this raises a number of questions. Uh, you know, is there any coordination between Karzai and the U.S. military? Uh, were they aware of these talks and they snatched him to prevent them from going forward? Or did Karzai actually have a secret track underway that the U.S. minders were in the dark about?
1: Well, I think all of those are possibilities. I think that what this really was about, the, he wasn't picked up by the U.S. He was picked up by the Pakistanis, mm-hmm. by the Pakistani uh, intelligence services, who clearly had known where he was probably for years. He was a longtime asset for them, and they had allowed him and other people allied with him to function using tribal areas on the Afghan-Pakistan border, but on the Pakistani side. This was the real thorn in the relationship between the U.S. and, and Pakistan. The U.S. was demanding that Pakistan, for years now, not only go after the, the, uh, uh, the Pakistani Taliban, but that they go after the Afghan Taliban that was now living part of the time inside Pakistan. The government in Islamabad, the Pakistani government, said, you know what, those guys are not a danger to us. They're not doing anything to us. We're not going to waste our resources and move our troops away from facing off with India to, to take on them. We're going to go after the Pakistani Taliban because they're a threat to us. They threaten our stability. So we're going to send troops. We're going to, you know, occupy valleys like they did in the Swat Valley, that sort of thing, and go after the Afghan Taliban. But we're not going after the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, the the, uh, uh, the Sorry, I had it the other way around. We're going to mm-hmm. go after the Pakistani Taliban. We're not going to go after the Afghan Taliban, because they don't threaten us. All of a sudden, they did go after the Afghan Taliban, most notably Mullah uh, Barudar, And I think a big part of the reason was precisely because there were talks either underway or about to begin, which would have left Pakistan out in the dark without a, uh, a force inside Afghanistan to represent their interests. Part of the complication of this whole war, Peter, is that even though we're supposedly allied with not only the government in Kabul that we installed, but we're also supposedly allied with the government in Islamabad that we support. But the government of Islamabad has always viewed the Taliban inside Afghanistan as their strategic ally.
2: Well, in, in, in simple terms, they created it. Uh, as Indeed, a, because as a proxy. they were afraid
1: that India and right. others, including, of course, the U.S. and Russia and other outside powers, were having too much power inside their neighbor Afghanistan by backing then-warlord groups who now are functioning as the government for the moment in Kabul. So they had their version of the Karzai government, which was the Taliban. They're not all that different. And this was an, an, an effort by Pakistan once it became clear that, talks either were already underway or or were going to be underway quite soon. Because ironically, uh, uh, Mullah Barudar is one of those in the Taliban who's known to be the most open to discussions, to negotiations, uh, to a much more diplomatic and moderate approach to political life than some of his colleagues. He was picked up symbolically to scuttle those talks so that you would not have a situation where the government in Afghanistan, backed by the U.S., backed by India, backed by Russia, would be empowered by a new alliance with the Taliban that would then leave Pakistan out in the cold without a reliable proxy inside Afghanistan. So that's what that capture was all about.
2: Well, and and it seems a pretty risky move on uh, Karzai's part because it's hard to imagine that the Taliban would make any deal that would leave him in power.
1: Well, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Yeah? The, the Taliban have been willing to negotiate before on other issues, and particularly at the local area. There are lots of arenas where broader political forces have allied with the Taliban, have negotiated with the Taliban on social and control issues in particular towns and villages and regions. Uh, The question of building schools for girls, for instance. It's not uniform that the Taliban opposes that wherever it happens. It's a question of how it happens. Now, there are certainly some Taliban commanders who are rigidly, dogmatically uh, uh, against girls' education, but they're not the majority and they're not the national leadership. At the national level, at the local level, when people can engage in a serious way, in a respectful way, respect is a key component of of, uh, Afghan politics in this context, the arrangements can be worked out. Uh, And so I think that it's not at all unlikely that negotiations, serious negotiations with the Taliban, that would leave significant power for Karzai's government, whether he would remain titularly in the same position, not sure. Mm -hmm. But I think that level of negotiation is definitely a possibility if the U.S. allows it to go forward on Afghan terms and not on U.S. terms.
2: We could go on, and I do want to encourage people to pick up the new primer, ending the U.S. war in Afghanistan, and particularly give it to a friend who doesn't really understand these issues or might have a kind of just a knee-jerk uh, position that this is the good war, uh, because I think there's very important information, very well explained in this small book with uh, with the big ideas. Now, Phyllis, I just wanted to get your comments. Um, in recent weeks, uh, just before Joe Biden uh, decided to uh, take a trip to uh, Israel, there were unilateral concessions from the Fatah wing of the Palestinian government, and they agreed to indirect talks with israel to be brokered by george mitchell and uh... at at the time i made a comment that i was concerned about this because there was no offsetting uh, concession from israel and then even worse as biden arrived they say it's coincidental uh... the netanyahu government announced uh, sixteen hundred new housing units to be constructed in east jerusalem and even a pro-Israeli uh, stalwart like Secretary of State Clinton is now in a war of words with the Israeli government, and this has raised the predictable response from the allies of Israel in the United States, who see, you know, who who just want to deny every anything as a provocation, and that everything Israel does is right. So this is quite a little storm, but it doesn't appear to be something that can lead to a resumption of meaningful peace talks.
1: Well, by, by itself, you're absolutely right. This is a huge storm. It's the biggest we've seen in 20 years. But that doesn't mean that it's going to lead to a change, a shift, a transition at all in U.S. policy. And without a change, a shift, a transition of U.S. policy, there will be no serious peace talks. There might be these nonsensical talks called proximity talks. Which if you think about it, Peter, you know as well as I that for the last 20 years, Palestinians and Israelis with completely dis- disparate levels of power have been engaging in face-to-face talks. This is nothing new. A retreat to the proximity talks that we saw in the early 1980s at a time when they were proximity because Israel refused to allow its diplomats to sit face-to-face with the PLO. That, those, those years are decades ago. The notion that all of a sudden we should see it as a victory, that we're going back to, quote, proximity talks, is nonsense. The problem we're seeing here is that there is absolute fury in Washington. It's very real at what happened with with Biden's visit. But the fury is 90 percent about the timing and only 10 percent about the substance, Hmm. instead of it being the other way around. If the U.S. were serious, what they would say to the Israelis is not, please do freeze settlements." And when Israeli officials say no, they would simply stop asking. What they need to do is say, you need to freeze settlements. And when Israel comes back and says, no, we don't think so, the answer is, you know that $30 billion, $30 billion, Peter, in military aid that George Bush promised to you that President Obama agreed to implement? You can kiss that goodbye. That's what pressure looks like. It's not a sequence of polite requests that are answered in the negative each time. Please freeze settlements. No. Please freeze settlements. No. Please freeze a few settlements. No. Please freeze a few settlements, Exclude East Jerusalem, for just a little while. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no. That's what we've seen. And then you stop asking. That's not pressure.
2: And so is APAC going to win this one in Washington?
1: This time I think it's a big question. I think there are some members of Congress who have stopped being afraid of APAC. AIPAC has shown itself that despite its access to huge amounts of money through which it can threaten to uh, fund the opponent of any member of Congress running for re-election, which is every member of the House, uh, who might vote against them, they can no longer deliver the votes of the Jewish community. I don't think APAC ever really represented the Jewish community and never represented Jews like me, for sure. But they didn't represent the majority of Jews, and now it's becoming more obvious. In the 2008 presidential votes, not only AIPAC but every other major pro-Israeli Jewish organization recommended voting against President Obama in in all of the primaries and in, in for, for many in the general election. Despite that, 78 percent of Jewish voters voted for Barack Obama
2: hmm.
1: in the election. Now that's huge. It means that. APAC's threats are becoming more and more transparent.
2: But if, if the recent uh, denial of the Goldstone Commission's report uh, by you know huge majorities in the House and mm-hmm. Senate, a resolution that for a change actually didn't originate at APAC, but Steven Zunas reported at a conference here recently uh, originated in the speaker's office. Uh, it, it seems that that connection is still very strong and so I, I want to see a shift, and, and a little more balance, uh, particularly on the part of uh, members of the House. Uh, but I, I haven't seen it surfacing well, so far. I, I
1: think you're right, Peter. There, there was one small victory in that horrifying debate over the Goldstone Resolution, which was that despite the very low number of votes against it, those who did vote against it gave incredible, powerful, moving, strong, and fearless statements on the floor of the House during that debate. I had never seen that before. It was more votes against than usual. That was good, but only tiny. Mm -hmm. But hugely important in terms of the willingness of those members to go public. And, you know, so many others would, they'd vote, but they wouldn't want it even recorded that they had voted the right way because they were so worried about it. So that's a shift. But I think the bottom line is, If you're looking to Congress to lead on this issue, you're going to be way disappointed. Hmm. Congress is going to be the last. They're going to be dragged kicking and screaming when they have no other choice. The discourse on this question is changing dramatically. The work of the U.S. campaign to end Israeli occupation, which is doing incredible work on the boycott, divestment, sanctions Mm -hmm. movement, the work around opposing... The $30 billion of U.S. military aid to Israel, the work specifically on Israeli accountability and stopping the U.S. habit of protecting Israel and providing it with impunity for its war crimes. That work is going on. You're seeing it in the churches that are starting to divest from corporations that earn a profit from occupation. You're seeing it on college campuses where there are BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanctions Campaigns. Mm-hmm targeting Caterpillar and, and uh, other corporations to get their, those corporations out of the universities. Make sure, for instance, that universities in the Northeast or the Midwest don't buy Caterpillar equipment when they have to replace their snow removal gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's all kinds of, of very exciting mobilizations underway that's really changing public discourse. The press on this s- subject is remarkably different now than it was a year, two years, five years ago. And the question's going to be, how long does it take Congress and the White House to figure it out, that their assumptions that it's political suicide to criticize Israel in a serious way is just wrong? How long is it going to be before they realize that pretty soon they're going to be faced with the reality that if they don't criticize Israel in a serious way, that may become political suicide?
2: Well, that's that's going to be a very interesting shift, and I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope we see it soon.
1: But we're working. We're Phyllis, working.
2: it's always great to talk with you. You're generous with your time, and thank you very much. And I just want to identify that the publisher of your primers is Olive Branch Press, which is an offshoot of the powerful little publishing house called Interlink Publishing. They do a lot of great work, particularly on foreign policy issues.
1: Absolutely, and they can be reached at interlinkbooks.com.
2: Thank you, Phyllis.
1: Thank you, Peter. Always a pleasure.
2: And the Peter B. Collins Show continues, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. This is the kind of trade I can get behind. Click on the link on the homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer for Peter B. Collins Show listeners. And joining me now to talk about free trade and his new book, which is succinct and candid, Free Trade Doesn't Work, Why, uh, Actually, What Should Replace and Why, we're joined by Ian Fletcher. He is an adjunct fellow at the San Francisco office of the U.S. Business and Industry Council. That's a think tank that was started in Washington way back in 1933. He got his degrees at Columbia University and the University of Chicago. Ian Fletcher, welcome to our program today. It's good to be on. Now, this is a controversial subject, and you don't mince any words. Uh, You're pretty clear about your position. Uh, And you work for this uh, Business and Industry Council. Are you a popular guy in the the halls of uh, this think tank?
0: Well, we're just about the last of the uh, business associations in Washington that Support America's traditional protectionist policy. So, the organization I work for is definitely behind me, yes. But mm-hmm. you're correct that in the larger world of business lobbyists and think tanks in Washington, we are kind of an outlier.
2: Yeah. Now, as a way to uh, ease into your book, I wonder if you'd offer some comments about this long running dispute that appears to have recently been settled regarding the uh, construction of a new fleet for the United States Air Force of uh, these tankers that refuel fighters and Mm -hmm. other planes Mm -hmm. in Mm midair. And this has been a long-running struggle between the uh, European consortium that uh, produces the Airbus, Mm -hmm. that's the plane that uh, consumers are familiar with, Mm -hmm. and uh, Boeing and Northrop. Mm -hmm. And uh, it appears that we're now coming down on the side of, uh, of building these planes in the United States, And uh, there there are a number of factors even before we get to the economic issues. And that includes that we want to maintain the capability uh, to produce uh, the latest type of of, uh, aircraft for the Defense Department. That uh, we want to preserve our own uh, security interests and the integrity. But what are the economic factors here that drive this beyond the pork barrel interests of the politicians whose districts uh, get jobs and revenue from the construction of uh, military hardware
0: well as i point out in my book free trade doesn't work which is available on amazon it's probably a mistake to look at military hardware issues as economic questions because the purpose of military hardware is not to make us rich it is to defend the country so it's a given that a lot of what you do in the military does not make any sense according to economic logic but It's not supposed to, because that's not its primary purpose. So I actually shy away from the economic analysis of these military decisions. In fact, it's a far larger problem that some politicians have attempted in recent years to impose an economic logic of free trade on our military procurement so that we end up buying components for vital military systems from abroad. This decision, which everybody is fussing about, is actually the exception to the rule since the end of the Cold War. The United States right now is not capable of putting a single military aircraft into the sky without using components made by potential adversaries. That's a very bad thing for obvious reasons.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, getting to the broader issues uh, and going back to the trade debates of the early 1990s, Uh, And and I am not uh, by any means an economist, but I'm more of a a protectionist to preserve American jobs and manufacturing. And I realize that we operate in a global economy now and that we can't just throw up uh, fences wherever we like. But uh, if you were to pick um, the more egregious of the agreements, NAFTA, uh, the WTO regimen, and more recently, the attempt to set up trade deals uh, like CAFTA with uh, uh, South America. Uh, w- what do you see as uh, the, the model here of what's wrong with the relaxation of uh, trade relations?
0: The real problem, for a start, is the fact that when we have free trade agreements, whether they're the NAFTA agreement or the various rules we agree to abide by when we belong to the WTO, Most countries understand that these rules are on paper, and they don't really observe them. The United States is one of very few countries in the world, the other perhaps being the U.K. to some extent, Canada, Australia, where what we put down on paper legally actually counts for something. The Chinese are a Leninist dictatorship, so they don't care what's on paper. What goes is what the party says. The Japanese are a highly civilized, but still fairly autocratic, semi-democratic country, so they're very polite about what they do, but they still do what's good for Japan. The Europeans are polite and self-righteous and smarmy, but at the end of the day, they're playing games they've played for hundreds and hundreds of years, back to the dawn of capitalism, and insofar as they're bright enough to pull it off, they only engage in free trade insofar as it suits them. United States is alone in the world pretty much in terms of giving this blank check to foreign nations so that is how we end up with the enormous trade deficits that we have. Mm -hmm.
2: And you make the point in your book that uh, globalization is not inevitable that uh, it is a choice and we've seen uh, that uh, at least until the recent economic uh, slide and and some of the meltdowns in certain sectors that uh, we were benefiting, or at least the Wall Street interests and the wealthy were benefiting from uh, the ability of of capital to morph from, you know, one market to another virtually overnight. Are there ways to uh, retain that kind of fluidity while properly protecting domestic interests? And in the United States, uh, I see it as primarily jobs and manufacturing, and of course those are interrelated.
0: Yes, of course there are. As I discuss at some length in my book, Free Trade Doesn't Work, there's no question that you can regulate these things if you want to. Anybody who tells you that globalization is some kind of unstoppable force is just not paying attention to history. The world was actually more globalized just before World War I than it was for an entire generation and a half after that. Globalization is not something that inevitably goes forward. World history has shown it ebb and flow. And if you look, for example, at our own country, up until the late 1970s, early 1980s, we did have various controls on the movement of capital internationally. We had things domestically like the Glass-Steagall Act, which we got rid of in 1999, and Ten years later, we've had exactly the kind of financial crisis that it was designed to invent. You can always regulate. And yes, there are all sorts of drawbacks to regulation. Over-regulation by government is a genuine problem. We all all understand that now. Mm -hmm. But there's no substitute for figuring out what the right level of regulation is. Too little will get you into just as much trouble as too much.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And let me quote from your book, because I found this uh, remarkably uh, understandable. And and let me just share with you, Ian, that I hit the wall in uh, Econ 101. It was a professor named Eisner at Northwestern uh, teaching the Samuelson text. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) I, I barely got through that. But I find you very clear, and uh, your arguments are are very easy to absorb. Thank you. And and let me just uh, quote from this section here. The cliche that we live in a borderless global economy does not survive serious examination. Because the U.S. is roughly 25% of the world economy, a truly borderless world would imply that imports and exports would each make up 75% of our economy, since our purchase and sale transactions would be distributed around the world. This would entail a total trade level, imports plus exports, of 150% of our gross domestic product. Instead, our total trade level is 29%, imports at 17%, exports at 12%. So our economy is nowhere near borderless. And as our trade is almost certainly destined to be balanced by import contraction rather than an export boom in the next few years, this trade level is almost certainly poised to go down not up. Explain a little more about this, please.
0: Well, there is this cliche that is constantly broadcast to us that we live in a borderless global economy. That is not even remotely true. For a start, 70% of the U.S. economy is in non-tradable goods. You can't import a house from China when you fill up your car with gasoline. You're going to fill it up in your neighborhood. Your taxes, which support the government that educates your children and pays your social security checks. that's all domestic when you buy food in the supermarket most of that is grown domestically so if you actually do the math and add up all the goods and services in the u.s economy and look at what people actually consume spend their money on and look at how much of that is actually able to be traded internationally only about thirty percent of the u.s economy is even Tradable. And as I noted, 17% is import. So we're probably trading about half what is tradable. And that's only 30% of the U.S. economy. So the idea that this is a seamless, borderless world in which the nation state has been abolished as an economic entity and we can just forget about even thinking about what's good for America because none of these distinctions between nations hold anymore That just doesn't stand up to the facts.
2: And talk a little bit, if you would, about the long-term impact of the huge trade deficits that we have been running, largely fueled by uh, low-cost imports from China and uh, in some ways uh, offset by the uh, generous borrowing that China has uh, indulged the United States in, particularly over the last 10 years.
0: Okay, I'd like to begin by reminding everyone that it's a mistake to look at this problem simply in terms of the Chinese. They loom very large in the American imagination for a number of reasons, particularly because people are just terrified when they hear things like the average manufacturing wage in China is 57 cents an hour, which appears to be true. But you also have to remember the United States is running close to $100 billion in deficit with Japan, which is a high-wage nation, and with the European Union, which is a block of high-wage nations. So it's not just about cheap foreign labor. The good news there is if a country like Germany, which currently pays higher manufacturing wages to its people than we do for the obvious reasons that Mercedes-Benz is not bankrupt the way General Motors is, Mm -hmm. if they can make a go of it in this ultra-competitive modern world and run trade surpluses and still have the kind of wages that they're used to there's no reason that we can't
2: very interesting now since you mentioned the automotive sector one of the things that has troubled me uh, since uh, we the taxpayers pumped almost a hundred billion dollars into Detroit is that we never saw um, the international books of these car companies and it's an open question I'm not leveling this as an accusation But I have no way of knowing if the dollars that were pumped into General Motors, to be specific, uh, were not used to support its operations in Europe, in Mexico, or South America uh, at the expense of the U.S. plants and jobs that were uh, lost uh, as a result of this downsizing, uh, which we financed and and, uh, continue to uh, subsidize. What are your thoughts about that, Ian?
0: There are a couple of issues there. So far as I can recall, just off the top of my head, over the last decade or so, GM's operations in Latin America have been profitable. The European subsidiary, which is principally in Germany, is called Adam Opel. Mm -hmm. I believe they've been profitable. So they've probably been bringing money into the system to support the North American vehicle operations, which have been unprofitable except for the light trucks. Now, given that that's the case, yes, You never really know what they may be doing behind the scenes, but there are reasonably strong constraints, I believe. I'm prepared to stand mistaken. Given how deep the government has gotten its fingers into into this pie, I don't think GM is literally siphoning off money to Europe or Latin America. That would strike me as an extremely a bizarre and kind of stupid thing for them to do if only because the probability of their getting caught is mm-hmm. so high when you have government accountants running all over your headquarters.
2: But but could they have pulled cash from those foreign operations before coming to us for bailouts?
0: That's a question that would have to be answered in detail, and I must apologize for not having GM's cash flow statements over the last <laughs> 10 years in my
2: head. That's okay.
0: All I can suggest, I can, I can tell you, generically speaking, you can go back and you can look at which parts, you can go to their annual report and you could look at which parts of that company internationally were profitable and which parts were not. And generically speaking, yes, there's a fair amount of ability of multinational corporations to engage in transfer pricing. Games in which they move money around inside the company in ways that are hard to detect. Because, for example, whenever you move a part made in one company, sorry, made in one country, to another country, and it's inside the company, they can set any arbitrary value on what the, the value of the part is. And because mm-hmm. it was never sold on the open market, there's no way to argue with them. If, say, they make a muffler in Belgium and then they move that to, to Michigan to install it in a car. They can say it's worth $100. They can say it's worth $200. They can say it's worth $500. And we, don't, and we don't know. There's no way to assign a price to that, because it's mm-hmm. not traded on an open market with a willing buyer and a willing seller. So yes, generically speaking, all sorts of games can go on. The reason I believe they probably have not been doing that is, as I said, they now have government accountants running all over their headquarters. They know they would get in a huge amount of trouble for that, some mm-hmm. of that stuff, if you actually lie about it to the government on your financial statements or whatever, you can actually go to jail for, particularly in the new post Sarbanes oxley mm-hmm. world. Are you familiar with
2: that? Yes. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, it's the thing that makes corporate officers take personal responsibility for financial statements.
2: And has any pers- has corporate officer been held accountable for uh, you know faulty or fraudulent statements? I mean, we, for example, uh, have just learned recently... About the extent to which Lehman Brothers uh, were cooking the books before that firm uh, imploded, uh, has anybody actually been held accountable under Sarbanes-Oxley?
0: I must apologize for the fact that I do trade economics rather than Wall Street, particularly <laughs> criminality. So I, I, I don't keep up with Wall Street criminal prosecutions. I could find out.
2: Yeah, but I, I,
0: I, don't, I, I that, that's not my bailiwick. Really, yeah,
2: I haven't heard of any. Uh, and, and then just one more here on the uh, the automotive sector: uh, Do the American government bailouts of Detroit automakers Chrysler and General Motors uh, constitute any violation of uh, trade uh, agreements, including WTO, GATT? Uh, I, I wouldn't see NAFTA in play here.
0: Sure, they do. As I point out in my book, "Free Trade Doesn't Work," which is available on. Amazon.com, our bailout of the auto sector is chock-a-block full of subsidies, which are just blatantly illegal. The irony of this is that, one, this grievously undermines our ability to criticize any other nations for the subsidies that they have long employed. And the double irony is foreign subsidies are a part of what got GM into trouble in the first place. So we're being dragged, kicking and screaming, into playing the same kind of games that foreign nations have played for a very long time.
2: Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, um, how do you view the intersection of uh, economics and foreign policy and the role of uh, politics? Because uh, free trade has become a, a mantra, a, a rubric of uh, particularly conservative administrations, and we we saw Bill Clinton and, uh, to some extent, Barack Obama embrace it. And uh, I can't necessarily attribute motive, whether it was uh, defensive or uh, because they they truly believed in these principles. Uh, but but how do you view that, and have they taken uh, economic theory and bastardized it for uh, political gain?
0: You have to understand that the pattern has been very consistent for a long time. Barack Obama is a free trader. He is not that different from Bush, who is a free trader, who is not that different from Clinton, who is a free trader. So there's not a lot of difference between the presidents here. You're also correct that there's a huge amount of special interest pressure from multinational corporations to have endlessly freer trade, quote-unquote free trade. As we all know, it's one-sided, it's problematic, it's fake in any number of ways. But from the point of view of the problems it causes, it's very real. Now, in answer to your question about whether economic theory has been bastardized, unfortunately, that's not the case. The Theoretical economics, the economics that's taught in school, that's researched in the universities, and so forth, for the last 40 years or so, has been pro-free trade for the most part. It's only in the last five to ten years that there's finally beginning to reawaken a very serious and intellectually reputable critique of free trade, which I am a part of. But there's a very small number of people who are doing this. I have the conviction that in the long run, we're probably going to win the argument. But it will take time. Mm
2: -hmm. Ian Fletcher, in your book, you introduce me to the concept of uh, perverse efficiency. Mm -hmm. You write, the uh, profoundest fact here is actually that this entire mess is efficient, as free market uh, economics understands efficiency. This explains why free trade's dangers in this regard have been mostly ignored by economists within the rigorously logical albeit perverse assumptions of mainstream economics it is merely a mathematical curiosity that free trade can make a nation worse off by seducing it into decadent consumption now isn't that what we saw particularly in uh, the you know before the real estate bubble burst i recall a figure that something like uh, a third of californians who bought suvs in, I, I believe it was 2006, uh, borrowed on their home equity uh, in order to buy that, that uh, monster land bruiser or uh, uh, Lincoln Navigator. Uh, talk a little bit about what you mean by perverse efficiency.
0: Sure. What I mean when I talk about perverse efficiency is the fact that contemporary economics is set up so that at the end of the day, What it is about is the satisfaction of consumer preferences. It's basically a philosophy that says whatever gives people what they want is efficient. And some ways of doing economics are very efficient for for achieving that. People get what they want. Some ways, like socialism or some kind of capitalism that is regulated in a bad way, that's inefficient. But whenever you're talking about what's efficient and what's inefficient, the way you judge that is is does it give people what they want? Now, that sounds good. That's fine. The problem is, what if people want a short-term consumption binge, which will naturally be followed by their having a lower standard of living in the future because they've run down their accumulated assets, their savings, etc., and they've piled up a mountain of debt. Well, the problem is that if your economics is organized around the idea of giving people what they want, then when you have a culture, a society, where people, what they want is just gimme, give gimme, give gimme give now and not thinking about where this is going to take you in the future, what its consequences for your long-term standard of living are, well, then economics is just going to shrug its shoulders and say, okay, that's efficient. You've, that's what they wanted. That's what they got. That's okay.
2: Hmm. Very interesting. Now, uh, how do we unravel uh, this, this whole system that we have shifted to a free trade model and what are the acceptable models that, uh, value, uh, the nation state that, uh, allow us to, uh, try to reflect our self-interest to a higher degree and in particular to preserve American jobs and the American middle class.
0: Well, as I talk about in my book, Free Trade Doesn't Work, which you can find on Amazon.com, the first thing we have to do is just get away from the extremism. Nothing that I have to say is against trade per se. Trade is beneficial. Human beings have traded for thousands of years. There's good reason to have imports, good reason to have exports, but trade is not the same thing as free trade. Free trade means trade under laissez-faire rules. It means deregulated. It means a road with no lines painted on it. There's no way that in our domestic economy, Americans have taken pure 100% laissez-faire seriously for more than 100 years. I mean, you'd have to go back to 1880, 1890 to get back to the era when we had no labor laws, when child labor was legal, there was no minimum wage, when you could do anything on the stock market and not go to jail, when there was no laws to prevent banks from collapsing. That That's the old laissez-faire world of the 19th century. And nobody's believed in that domestically for about 100 years. So it doesn't make any sense to apply that extremely aggressive, ultra-free market, 100% philosophy to international trade. That's my first point. The second point is we've got to stop being the odd man out in the world. The rest of the world, they like trade. They do not like free trade. They understand that free trade will result in you getting hurt. So we need to understand the kind of games that the rest of the world plays to impose some moderation and reasonableness and protection of the national interest on their trading system. And we need to start looking at what the Europeans, the Japanese, not so much the Chinese, because they're a dictatorship and they're a developing country. But we need to look at the other countries that are on our level economically. And we've got to look at how they keep a handle on their trade situation. Because, frankly, they're doing better than we are with respect to trade at this point. The third thing I would say is if you're looking for a straight answer packaged solution, there's any number of ways to skin a cat. But I know people want to have at least one straight answer, so I give one in my book. I say that if you don't do anything else, perhaps the best thing the U.S. could do would just be to impose a flat tariff on all imported goods and services, maybe 25 30%, And this would bring America's trade into balance. And it would also tend to protect the kind of industries that we want to have in this country because a flat 25% tariff... It's probably not going to relocate low-grade industries like the manufacturing of T-shirts back to the United States, because those are mostly based on unskilled labor. Mm -hmm. It would, however, tend to relocate industries like automobiles, electronics, television, aircraft, semiconductors, computers, and so forth back to the U.S. And those are the kind of industries that have a future and that pay the kind of wages it takes to live in a developed country.
2: Well, and uh, I think that many consumers would pay an extra 25% if it's fully passed along to us for an iPhone or a new flat-screen HDTV uh, or many of the things that are quite desirable uh, on the consumer level right now.
0: Well, if you want to talk about paying more, you're not necessarily going to pay more, and you're probably almost certainly not going to pay 25% more if you had a 25% tariff. There are reasons for that. The first thing is... The 25% tariff only applies if you buy the foreign-made product. If you buy something that's made in the U.S., there's no tariff at all. The second point that I would like to make to people is the current cheapness of foreign goods is caused by the fact that the dollar is a strong currency. Now, if the dollar collapses by half, that doubles the price of foreign goods. So that's way more than a 25% tariff in Mm -hmm. any case. And right now, these incredible trade deficits that we have are eventually going to kill the dollar. So it's not a choice between cheap foreign imports and expensive American-made goods. It's a choice between cheap foreign imports for another few years, but then that game is going to be over.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you think we could see a resurgence of, uh, for example, I I don't know of any uh, major company that's actually producing semiconductors in Silicon Valley anymore.
0: Well, the physical fabrication in uh, Silicon Valley, there are still a couple of uh, fab- fabricators, and there are certainly uh, fabricators in the U.S. There's only, you're correct that the, there's very little being built anymore. The only silicon fabrication plant that's uh, been started this year is actually in upstate New York, where they're uh, building a second location of the Semitech Consortium around Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is a good engineering school in mm-hmm. Troy, New York. So, other than that, there are about uh, I think 15 or 16 major semiconductor plants being built in the world, being started this year, and the only one of them in the United States. So, uh, in that regard, yes, you are correct.
2: Now, one other thing I wanted you to address from the book that I found interesting is the argument uh, about the impact of uh, trade on government and and tax revenues. And your bullet point here reads, free trade doesn't gut government. And then you show a table of uh, tax revenues as a percentage of gross domestic product. Uh, what, what do you see as the, uh, the range of impacts? And how could we make adjustments to move away from uh, a, a pure free trade model to one that does have appropriate protectionism?
0: Well, the solution that I suggested in my book is a flat tariff. One of the benefits of a flat tariff is that it takes the political mischief out of the picture because mm-hmm. one of the problems that we're constantly confronted with whenever you propose protectionist measures is that it's just going to result in favor trading and tariffs being applied to those industries that are politically powerful on Capitol Hill, which is obviously undesirable and very corrupting. That's one major reason why I'm in favor of a flat tariff.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, if I could, I'd like to ask you just to comment on a couple of recent uh, issues that have been in the news, Uh, in particular the problems in Greece and the way that its euro partners have, at least uh, in the short term, stepped up uh, to loan money to Greece as it imposes uh, sharp austerity programs that have led to uh, people in the streets. Uh, Is this fix sustainable? And have we properly identified the cause? And are American investment bankers uh, at the center of gaming uh, the Greek economy and using kind of Enron offshore, off books uh, tactics to hide the extent of uh, the debt load that Greece was carrying?
0: I think that it's fairly clear at this point that American bankers on Wall Street were complicit in helping. The government of Greece to borrow more money than it should have by, as you say, cooking the books. And one of the dangers of modern finance is the complexity of what they do is so great that if you're determined to do something and pretend you're not doing it without literally breaking the law, you can engage in that kind of sleight of hand very easily. That's different from the way things were as late as, say, 1975, 76, when stocks were stocks, bonds were bonds, debt was debt, and whatever you did, and they did make mistakes in that time too, but whatever you did, you could tell what it was, and it was fairly easy for governments to set clear limits on what you were allowed to do because there wasn't this kind of shell game of assets constructed upon assets, upon assets, upon assets, which is really a game which, was last played in the United States in the 1920s, which Mm -hmm. is why we had all the reforms of the 1930s, like the Glass-Steagall Act and so forth. It is a mistake to allow the financial system to become so complex and so opaque that you can't tell what anybody's doing.
2: Well, it seems that those in charge didn't know what they were doing.
0: Well, the problem is that In the 1920s, when these games were sort of first put together and they had a huge bubble in the 1920s, which collapsed, they then put regulations in place in the 1930s, FDR and the New Deal, which said, this is still a capitalist country, but there are limits on what you're doing. And in particular, you can't do anything which is so complex and slippery and opaque that it's impossible for the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Treasury Department and the IRS to keep an eye on you, to keep you out of trouble. Mm Mm-hmm. from then on, up until the 1990s, you had 50, 60 years, and it was, that was just part of the consensus in how this country operated. It wasn't a liberal, it wasn't a conservative thing. Ronald Reagan made no attempt, for example, to undo all that. Ronald Reagan, the great communist, right? Yeah. Okay, he, he, was, he was perfectly fine with all that stuff. In the 1990s boom, you had both an economic bubble and you had a kind of romantic mythology coming out that because of technology, because of computers, somehow the free market had been perfected. And we could now rely upon the financial markets simply because they are free markets, that they're always going to do the right thing. And if the prices of financial assets go up, it can't be a bubble, because there are no bubbles, because the market is always rational. And you have guys like Milton Friedman, the famous economist at the University of Chicago, providing intellectual and philosophical rationalization for this. And as a result, in 1999, Bill Clinton agreed to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act, which is fundamental principle which says that there's a world of difference between the highly speculative finance you're allowed to do with your money and the very prudent conservative finance you are required to do when you're handling somebody else's money. Mm You see, it's normally referred to as the distinction between investment and commercial banking. What it's really about is what you can do with your money and what you can do with other people's money. Because the big temptation for bankers has always been you take in deposits, you pile up a lot of other people's money, which in theory you're supposed to be able to give back to them if they ever ask for it. And then you take this giant wad of money and you go to the stock market or wherever and you engage in very aggressive speculations and you make a ton of money that way. Mm -hmm. The problem is you're taking extremely large risks with somebody else's money. And that was supposed to have been ruled out, and it was for two generations in this country. But we undid that under Bill Clinton, and 10 years later we're picking through the rubble.
2: One of the other issues I'd like to raise with you, Ian, is uh, about Haiti, uh, because uh, historically, you know, it's been a a country that could never uh, climb out of the massive debt, uh, starting with the French and then the uh, Devalier Devalier kleptocracy that uh, reigned there for many years. And as a result of the January earthquake, uh, it appears that most, if not all, of the Haitian debt will be written off. And so it's an opportunity to start fresh. Uh, But we've seen that uh, it was a regional, low-cost manufacturing center for clothing and other goods that require uh, simple labor. And, uh, for example, Disney was having a lot of its Mickey Mouse uh, uh, logo wear manufactured in Haiti. Is there a way to build that economy? on a model that you would see as both in the self-interest of the Haitian people and sustainable in terms of international trade?
0: Sure. If you look around the world and you want to deal with the problems of the third world, the thing you have to do is look at those third world countries that have been successful. Now, in Latin America, it's not too far from from Haiti, Costa Rica is generally regarded as one of the more pleasant, well-ordered countries down there. The Costa Ricans are not rich by any means, but they're not desperately poor either. They're reasonably content with their situation. They have a stable democratic country, which in part is the fact that they've had the reflection of a reasonably decent economy for a long time. Mm-hmm. In Africa, the best example is is Botswana, which is one of very few countries in sub-Saharan Africa other than South Africa, which is a whole other Ball game, but Botswana had their act together for the last forty years, and they've been quietly being a nice little African republic where nobody starves and they don't kill each other over politics so that's really what you've got to do. look at the countries that have succeeded, and it's possible to identify the kind of policies that that they've followed so I think that I think there is hope for places like Haiti, sure.
2: Well, it's a pleasure talking with you today, Ian, and I really appreciate your insight and uh, your your clear discussion of these issues. Ian Fletcher, adjunct fellow at the San Francisco Office of the U.S. Business and Industry Council. His new book, as he mentioned, is available at Amazon.com, entitled Free Trade Doesn't Work. Ian Fletcher, thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me on your show. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me your comments, Peter at peterbcollins.com happy trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keeps my